Hello and welcome back to the Cine Skinny, the film podcast from the folks who make the Skinny magazine. Peter Simpson is taking a well-earned holiday at the minute, so I'll be hosting this edition. So to all those Peter Simpson stands out there, we apologise. <laughs> Please don't switch off. So my name's Jamie Dunn. I'm joined as ever by Anna Heap. Hello. How you doing, Anna Heap? I'm good. You say as ever. I haven't been here in months. Like <laughs> That's true, actually. Months. Yeah, it's been a while. I <laughs> yeah, forgot. it's been a while. Yeah. Do well, you even remember how to podcast? No, like I literally don't. <laughs> well, what have you been up to? Um, I have been, I was at Venice and then I was at London um, and in between that, I was at Luton to like balance oh it God. out. <laughs> what a what a globetrotter! Yeah, <laughs> Lewis, Lewis, what have you been up to? I don't been up to much. Really, you've, you've been here. I've been here. I've exactly. been on the podcast. I've been committed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we have a super busy episode for you this month. Uh, this month, this week, um, we will be discussing a trio of films which were very buzzy titles at the two big European film festivals earlier this year. Um, each picked up big awards, so that's super exciting to talk about those and with these big three films out you might think that cinema is in robust health you know these big prestigious films come into cinemas but the question of where to watch these amazing films becomes uh, ever more important because here in Scotland the film community was rocked last week by the financial collapse of the CMI the charity that oversees the running of the film house in Edinburgh the Belmont in Aberdeen and the Edinburgh International Film Festival we'll be giving you our initial reaction to that kind of devastating closure which is really rocked the whole of Edinburgh and the whole of Scotland really. Um, But we'll start this week on the fun note, we're going to hear what everyone's been watching recently. So Annie, maybe a good place to start with you since you've not uh, told us what you've been watching for a while. Um, Yeah, so I could tell you about my Gilmore Girls rewatch, but I won't (laughs) do that because (laughs) I've been hate watching Gilmore Girls, like no one's business. Um, I was at London Film Festival, like I just said, I got back last week, this week, I don't know, like recently. Um, and saw a lot of good things, three of which we are talking about later. Um, but some of my favorites, so my favorite favorite was All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is the documentary um, about Nan Golden and her fight against the Sacklers, the Sackler family that were very responsible for kind of the OxyContin um, kind of like addiction epidemic across the States, um, but also have their names on all kinds of like prestigious cultural buildings. It is fucking stunning, that film. We will talk about it, I'm sure. It is gorgeous. It's like the celebration of queer culture, like 80s underground community um, and activism. And it's just so like, oh my God, it's like sexy and angry and so good. So I absolutely love that one. Love, love that one. Um, I missed it in Venice, but I was really excited to see it um, in London. And then saw Women Talking, Turns out women should be talking. They're good at talking. Uh, that was really good. Again, I'm sure we'll talk about all of these. Um, I saw the donkey film from Cannes, oh, EO. Yeah. Oh man, that was so fucking sad. <laughs> that poor donkey. It's just about like, you just follow this donkey and everyone's mean to him. Um, and when I was little, we always used to go to donkey sanctuaries because my dad really likes donkeys. And he used to get like, um, every time we would go to a charity shop, if there was like a little donkey ornament, he would like get one. And eventually we had like 50 and my mother recently gave them away because she was like, enough is enough. So I really like the donkey film. Oh God, you're going to be upset later because uh, we're talking about another donkey that dies on. Oh my God, yeah, that was really sad as well. It is like on his lap, fucking hell. Anyway. Is it a documentary about a real donkey that everyone's been to or a fictional donkey? So I thought it was a documentary and then it, like about like 10 minutes in, I was like, this is not, <laughs> <laughs> this donkey is not real. No, it's like This donkey is an actor. This donkey is lying to me. Um, yeah. 
yeah, it was very like stylized. Um, and he goes from being like a circus animal to being like a sort of farm donkey, but he's not very good at it. And then he like gets abused and he gets like runs away and blah, blah, blah. And it's just very magical, like kind of seeing the world through his eyes um, and kind of the ways that we treat like the non-human was, it was very good. That poor donkey. Oh my God. Anyway. So, so. I believe it's a kind of, is it a homage to the Robert Bresson film, Althusser Balthasar? The, Let's say yes, because uh, I have not seen it. I, th- I just that's what I picked up from that description, because that's basically the plot of that film. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, it's so about like, a donkey. It's, it's a donkey gets past the different owners and is me- maltreated. And, um, yeah, yeah, I guess it is quite like a kind of, almost like a fable in a way. Like yeah. It feels like a story that's been told a lot. Which um, is kind of like partly the influence, I think, for Warhorse as well. Because Warhorse is Yeah, it's like a better version of Warhorse. Like mm. Warhorse is like shit and boring. And this is like kind of punk yeah. and with mm. a donkey. Like much better. Yeah. And I do like Skolomowski as a director. He's like 90 odd, isn't he? He's like yeah, he was like, he introduced the film and he did not know where he was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I loved him a lot. He was great. Um, so yeah, London was, it was good. Saw those things. And then, yeah, been watching Gilmore Girls. And that's it. Sounds solid. Uh, Lewis, what about yourself? Um, I've been watching Bits and Bobs. What I've really been enjoying is the, uh, well, I went to go see one of the films from the Halloween season at GFT. So I'd never seen Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula ever before. <laughs> and I mean, like that, it's, it's, it's really fun. It's, uh, everything has already been said about it. Like the costume design and the set design is just absolutely amazing. And Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins are very good. Keanu Reeves is very bad. Yeah, but God bless. <laughs> <Why> <laughs> My <not? laughs> like esteem for Keanu Reeves has dropped after seeing that film. I didn't realise he had such like a rocky start in films. You can like claw that back though. Like watch Point Break and sure, like, it'll do sure. it. <laughs> well, actually, like though his acting is pretty crummy in it, I felt a little bit like he wasn't being directed at all, you know? So it's like he's Jonathan Harker and he's like going through post-apocalyptic Transylvania or whatever, getting chased by a big pack of wolves. And they like his carriage driver is this bird mutant man and they go through like a ring of blue fire into this big gothic castle and his face the entire time is like that emoji with this straight line as a mouth and just two dots for eyes <laughs> and it's like sh- like you know what is Coppola doing surely the director has to like say give me something do something it's the director's job to make something out of nothing I thought it was more the accent you were going to complain about that the I, accent I, is bad yeah um, but you're a, a real kind of Winona Ryder jag as well. I am, I am. I'm seeing a lot of Winona Ryder films I hadn't seen before. And Winona Ryder also does a bad accent, but doesn't act as bad. Right. But it's a bit hard to tell that she's acting good because she's doing a bad accent. It's a deep film with many layers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it since the time, but I, all I remember is Gary Oldman's performance as being like, like the costumes and stuff and like the, the, the special It's so fun. It's, it's really like, I wouldn't say it's comedic, but it's the thing about going to see a film that like going to see like a you know short-lived screening of an older film is that all the fans come out so anthony hopkins character is like again he's not like jokey jokey but like people love him they were like laughing all throughout every one of his lines where it's like are you gonna do an autopsy on her it's like no don't be ridiculous i'm just gonna cut off her head and drive a stake through her heart and like people love it and that's what i like about sort of these screenings is that you can like a lot of the passion comes along and you can also see, I want to see Nosferatu, which they're doing. That's on the 27th, the 29th, and the 30th, um, which I've never actually seen in cinema, and I assume would be really, really good. Uh, and on the 31st, they're doing The Thing and The Shining, which are classics. I've never seen The Shining. I've never seen any of these. 
They're oh. good. They're really good. Uh, yeah. I, no, no, no. I believe you. I might have seen Osferatu actually, maybe. Um, but I'm not very good with horror. So I haven't seen like a lot of the classics. Mm. I would really like to see The Shining in the cinema. Do you mm. say that's the 31st? 31st Halloween. 31st. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go. Yeah, do it. Yeah. That's amazing. It, I would, I is would it say scary? Like, I don't find it really scary, but I know some people who do. It's very as- atmospheric. Okay. Like it's it's all, you know, it's, there's not kind of jump scares really. There's a, couple, a kind of really creepy bit where um, a beautiful woman t- transforms into like a old woman who's like dissolving. Um, oh. But otherwise, it's not very scary. I don't mm. think. Okay. It's, it's but but it's just all the performances are great. The camera moves beautifully. It's it's really cool. No, I would really like. It's to. one. Of, it's that film that like every single scene or line has had an essay written about it. Like people do like deep dives into The Shining and conspiracy theories and stuff like that. It's just fun. <laughs> it's just like it just sticks <laughs> in your head. Thing. <laughs> what have you been watching, Jamie? Well, talking about um, fun audiences, I was I've been catching up on some of the LFF I have been in London unfortunately but I have been sort of catching up with a few at um the screenings at the JFT and I saw Mr Policeman at the weekend Mr uh, Policeman Not Mr Policeman my policeman <laughs> my policeman <laughs> my policeman I'll keep call it a different name anyway my policeman we are not cutting this <laughs> <laughs> Mr Anyway, what was fun about it? The film is awful. It's like it's really just flavorless. Like if it's a if I could describe a film, it's like cardboard. No flavor. Terrible, terrible acting. Harry Styles is as bad as you've heard. But what was really interesting watching it was the audience was filled with young women who were clearly Harry Styles fans, and I can't tell if they just organically appeared at the JFT or if someone <laughs> rounded them up. But they were, but they were all there. They were all they're sitting plants. in, but they're all sitting in the same spot, right in the middle, and they were really fun to watch it with because they were so hyped. Whenever Harry came on screen, they would like scream almost. Um, oh, when he takes his, when he takes his clothes off, the the gasp in the room is like <laughs> shocking. But what was really refreshing is they also laughed at how bad it was. They they were mocking it constantly and by the end they were giggling like hell. So they were a really kind of um, refreshing audience. You know, they weren't po-faced. They showed the, how they felt without like mocking it. They were just like, as a natural reaction, this is, this is crap. That's and were, really and were laughing on. <laughs> so yeah, watch more films with like Harry Style fans, I think. Like, they're, they're a really good audience. So, so we need to round them up. Yeah, I, I, I think there should <laughs> be a gang cinema. of young, horny Harry, <laughs> Harry Style fans at each screening just to like, bring them get, along with you to The Shining. <laughs> oh my God, yes. yeah. But, but yeah, I just really appreciate their, because I feel sometimes film critics can be very, what's the word? They get very territorial, it's territorial, uh, or tribal about the, their stands, their favourites, and they'll defend bad acting, they'll defend bad directing if it's one of their faves. And I just have love how these uh, young women just like, were just laughing and mocking this bad acting. Um, but you while know, also being super horny. Well, just be, just believe. <laughs> That's also, amazing. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's just a really natural, honest reaction. So it's good. <laughs> so yeah, so that was uh, that was our fun. But we've also had a really tough couple of weeks because. Uh, on the 6th of October, we got the devastating news that the Edinburgh Film Festival, the Film House in Edinburgh, and the Bellman in Aberdeen were going to close their doors, possibly seemingly for good. Um, the news came as a surprise to many, especially the staff. 
102 members of the 107 people who worked for CMI were all unceremoniously sacked by a surprise meeting on the 6th of October. Shortly afterwards, the board put out a statement saying that the company had gone into administration due to the perfect storm of spiralling energy costs and a huge decrease in the audience since the pandemic. That's not quite the story we got from Screen Scotland, the wing of Creative Scotland that deal with the screen sector. Um, And I'm sure there's much more that's going to come out about this story in the future. But maybe it'd be good to start with Anahi. Um, What was your just initial reaction? Yeah, I was fucking devastated. I was upset for days to the point that I was like, am I getting depressed again? (laughs) Because I couldn't shake it. I was so, so, so upset. And I think if you're not in Edinburgh, it's quite hard to sort of communicate what a loss it is. Because you think of it as like, oh, a loss of a cinema or a loss of like a film festival. But it was hugely important to so many people I know, like critics, programmers, filmmakers, like it kind of formed a lot of our careers. I really think a lot of us wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for the film house. It was incredibly important for its audience in how it curated things. Um, I think it was like one of the only cinemas I can think of that really thought about film as an exhibition and as like a form of curation, as that kind of art. And that was like just the hole it has left is insane. So yeah, there is, this is like very <laughs> complicated and very upsetting in various ways. I think it's worth very, very quickly saying how exactly this happened on the day, um, because that has a lot of bearing on the news. So people that worked in the film house that worked in Belmont received an email the night before at like 5 or 6 p.m. telling them that they had to come to a meeting the next day at 10. In that meeting, um, the CEO, I think, was in Edinburgh of uh, CMI, which is the Centre for the Moving Image, and the COO was in the Belmont. They read out a statement from a piece of paper telling everyone that they were fired. So 102 people, like you say, were sacked. Five people were left to manage the redundancies and they are making themselves redundant at the end of this week, which is sick. And they read out the statement and then they fucked off. Haven't been heard from since. Who's, who knows where they are? Um, a lot of staff weren't there, obviously. So colleagues had to tell their colleagues that they were fired, which is obscene. So I think there's like really two kind of levels to this. Oh yeah, they took away their computers immediately. They changed the locks on the door within the hour, like insane shit. So yeah, there's two sides to this story, really. There is kind of the broader politics of how the arts is run and funded in the UK, which is fucking badly. It has been almost 13 years of the Tories. That is 13 years of austerity, of funding cuts, of increasing costs. I really don't think (laughs) a single member of the Tory party really deserves a day of peace for like the kind of gutting of like the creative and moral and welfare systems of this country. And that's kind of what the CMI was sort of like indicating in their statement. But there is also what the CMI did and how they managed it and how they treated their staff and how, yeah, like their CEO is making like a six figure salary. Like they talk about like a 200,000 pound increase in like bills, which obviously is horrendous and not acceptable. But also their CEO is making a six-figure salary. And so a lot of this is, I don't know, I think we need to both be angry at that, but also angry at how this institution, this supposed charity, has treated people, the way that it's treated its audiences, the way that it seems to have very little care for the art that it was like supposedly promoting. 
And I think we have a tendency, and I feel this way, like I feel so like idyllic about the film house and I feel like idyllic about the arts. I think the arts are like very utopian. That's how we think about them. And the reason that they are utopian is because they represent like a breakaway from capitalism. And if you don't have that, like if you have funding models that see funding as investment that expects a return of profits, or if you have CEOs pulling enormous salaries, and if you have people kind of the rights of workers and labor being completely undervalued and exploited, then you are not that breakaway from capitalism. And therefore the arts is just aesthetics. Like it's nothing else. So yeah, I'm really just, yeah, really fucking angry at how it happened. I think it's fucking appalling. I imagine you guys kind of feel the same. Yeah, I mean, the first reaction is shock. It's like, yeah, you cannot, it, it seems crazy to me that a city, the capital city of a country, of Scotland, is going to be without an art house, you know? And an art house, it's not just a place to watch posh films with subtitles, you know? It's a place where there was a lot of education being happening. I think you've seen that in the last few days, the amount of filmmakers who have said that, um, two filmmakers I'm thinking of in particular, Ben Sharrick mm. and, and Charlotte Wells, who see the film houses like, really the start of their careers it's opened their eyes Charlotte Wells was on schemes this little mm. scheme called Scam which a lot of young filmmakers in Edinburgh went through you know it, it, it did charity work it, it, it gave people accessible screenings it was you know it did things like uh, babies in arms screenings you know like, like there were so many communities touched by this building mm. and used it for all sorts of spaces it wasn't just a place to talk about aesthetics of cinema you know if you if you went to the film house you'd see the same faces over and over again mm. people who went to the film house really loved the film house and they would go again and again so that was my first reaction obviously also the skinny worked closely with the with yeah. the, the film house and the film festival and we know um the people who work there we know the marketing teams we know the programmers you know we're devastated that they're treated like this like nobody deserves to lose a job but nobody deserves to lose a job like this um, but yeah, I, I'm also super angry now. Like I feel like the, the shock has faded away and it's, it's I feel like the, the CMI suggesting this is all to do with COVID seems to me uh, a bit of a smokescreen because clearly the film house has been in trouble for a while. If you visit the, the film house, you can see that the... The, the carpets are frayed. You know, the the, the if you sit down on the seats, the the the, the fall apart. Like the, the the whole building was crumbling, um, and it has been for a while. Part of that is because they've had a dream of this new silver and gold glass <laughs> glass and steel uh, eye of Siron that they're, they're going to they're gonna build. Um, you know, it In seems front of the fucking Sheraton. Yeah, you know, like that seems like such a distraction when you have this building that's that's fallen apart but also you know um i hate to say it when i would go to the film house it was never that busy and it was i felt like the youngest person there by 10 years and i'm not exactly a young person so i feel like it didn't attract it, it sort of it given up on attracting young people and, and i think it was just coasting along and then when a, a crisis like this does happen it it obviously that they had to hit the nuclear button for some reason. You know, why there should have been stages before this happens, you know? Like there should have been stages. Why did they go to Screen Scotland like the day before? The day before. <laughs> How is this not a conversation? How is this not declared? Like I'm sorry, who is running this fucking clown show? Like that's not okay. Like 
you know, beyond just what you listed out as like a really humiliating and troubling way to treat your staff, like my heart goes out to them because I've worked in, I, I like worked part-time retail jobs in more than one cinema mm. uh, throughout uni. And I can just say that like people, like the teams, the staff who work in cinemas are like the loveliest people ever. They're, it was my favorite time. And, and even then, like people I know, I've known people who have worked in the film house before, and they all kind of agree that, like, you make these incredible bonds with the people who work there. And as you were pointing out, like, the film house was always quite quiet whenever you went in. And I think it was, you know, only a couple months ago that I was in there seeing, like, Fire of Love or something like that. Something that we'd seen on the, something we talked about on the podcast. And it's quite quiet, but the staff are just there and they're just, like, chatting with each other and obviously having a great time and forming this connection. You'll never find, like, a more sort of colourful and passionate team of like film fans uh, anywhere else than when working in a cinema and they've just been like absolutely shafted these are people who not even like programmers and creators who have obviously just been dealt such a bad hand but people who are like not that deep into the industry who are just mm. sort of working in customer service facing roles yeah. who are now just left completely without direction without kind of uh the setting of, of what was up until now a community of theirs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I, what the, the biggest anger is these are so important. Like, you know, we're talking about Edinburgh Film Festival, which was until recently the longest running film festival in the world. It's Scotland's most internationally facing festival, the one that is renowned around the world, the one that people have talked about for years. To be in charge of that and just to let it go in a day, you know, mm. to not to not fight for it more. Uh, that's what I, that's what I was, I'm really disappointed by that there was no one at the top of CMI who were go who's going to fight for this organisation, who was going to make changes, make the tough decisions. Yes, maybe there should be a restructuring. Maybe, you know, I'd like to think if I was in this position where I was getting a, a big salary, maybe I would say I'll take a I'll take a pay cut. Yeah, if that helps. You mm -hmm. know, the, the, you know, and why? Why was there no? Why was it not run by people who think like that, mm -hmm. who are passionate about the building and passionate about this organisation, this film festival that's ran for a long time, had a lot of people in charge of it who have taken care of it, who have built it up from the ground up, and then for you know, for a few lousy people to just let these three organisations go, I think is a scandal, really. It is a scandal. I was listening to um, Sana. Jehu, is that how you yeah, say yeah. her name? Um, who is one of the kind of co-directors of Glasgow Short Film Festival. And she was on the culture show that Katie Go and Katie Hawthorne do on EHFM um, that came out yesterday that was all about this. So I really recommend people listen to it because it's very, very good. But she was saying that the figure that the CEO of CMI makes is what the maximum amount of funding that Glasgow Short Film Festival can apply for. And that is just simply not, an ecosystem that is functioning. Yeah. Like, that's not okay. But even if you look at another big institution, if you go down the M8, there's no one at Glasgow Film who makes over £60,000. Mm. That's, like, including the CEO. But if you go down to, to CMI, there's three people <laughs> who are over. So, so even just taking similar organisations, similar size staff, I would say similar importance. They're both serving yeah. two major cities. How can that disparage be? Um, and clearly, th those huge figures weren't earned because they they've run this place into the ground. Yeah. And you know, the the I mean, I don't really blame Creative Scotland for not giving this 
organization any more money because if it's it's been run so poorly and so shabbily. I mean, you should watch. I, I don't know. Maybe is libel a thing? I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you should say this is just my opinion, not the skinnies. But it seems to me things could be done better. And yeah, and I think it needs to be talked about. It does. Because it's the same thing, right? It's the same thing as what they were supposedly saying. This is all effectively Tory policy. And it's all like Tory attitudes towards the arts. And it doesn't matter whether you're like fucking the culture secretary, God knows who she is these days. But if you're that one, or if you're the head of CMI, if the way that you are behaving towards the arts is the same. And that is, like you say, it should have people that are passionate about it and that care and that understand it I think also the importance of it in a local and regional way like I said it was really difficult really really hard actually watching this happen from LFF and I mean I'm from London I will bat for London until my dying days I love it there Um, but no one cared like the only people that cared were those of us that were from Scotland like that was it Um, and that's really appalling and the statement quote unquote slash the tweets from the head of BFI was just so ridiculous. And I feel like that is actually an attitude that I kind of notice that CMI has itself. And I think actually a lot of like Scottish arts has itself where a lot of the conversation right now is that potentially the film festival can be saved, which is great and which is important, but that is quite like a glitzy kind of like international facing thing. And I think a lot of the ways they did the film festival this year was very like, oh my God, look at us, like we're throwing a big party. Whereas in the day-to-day, how it affects, like, the community of the city, Filmhouse is more important in a lot of ways. And that is, by and large, everyone I talk to, they're like, that's gone. Yeah. Well, if you think of the number of festivals that also, not just thinking of the Filmhouse programme, which is, you know, arguably among the best programmes you'll find in the Mm. UK. You know, a really good programme, you know. But there's, there's so many other festivals who rely on that building yeah. to you you know as a community space as a space that all these other programmers should be able to use we've already seen what happened with um scotland loves anime they've had to like fork out so much money to move to a different cinema mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be the same story for like african motion for the french film festival for all these fi- smaller festivals which are equally important in the ecosystem they're all gonna there's gonna be a knock-on effect to them as well yeah and and, and that, it's, it's, it's going to be really hard to replace it, I think. And I think Edinburgh can't do without it. So I mm-hmm. think we have to have some sort of alternative. And hopefully there are people in the background working on something that could sort of step in. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it's not. I mean, isn't it like right across the road from the film house is like the, what is it called? The Kayleigh Picture House or something? That's the old cinema that got turned into a Weatherspoons. I don't think Weatherspoons are going to let go of that one. No, 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 no. I'm just saying like the idea that that would happen to the oh, film house makes yeah. me want to kill myself yeah. <laughs> yeah. is what I'm saying. No. Like the idea that, yeah, these buildings could, like I was walking past yesterday. I think you saw it as well. They've like, they were putting bars on the windows. Like it's done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the idea that, yeah, anyone can buy it now. And the people that will buy it probably will just turn it into whatever. Like, it's just not acceptable. It's just not an okay way to run a city. It's not an okay way to run a country. <laughs> Like, it's just, yeah. Well, we'll show this story. We'll roll on. Um, we'll have more about it in the November issue of The Skinny. But yeah, we're all absolutely gutted for all the hardworking people uh, at Filmhouse and EF and Belmont who have lost their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really terrible. So we're going to talk about three films now. 
ironically three films that probably have done really well at Filmhouse. Um, so yeah. hopefully people will find um, a place to see them all. So we're going to first talk about Triangle Sadness. So after skewering the art world with his previous Pandor winner, um, Square, Swedish director Ruben Oslin picks up a second Pandor for this deliciously vicious satire going after the 1%. Presented in three chapters, the film takes a sledgehammer to the global elite. The first chapter follows two models, played by Harris Dickinson and Charles B. Dean, who are in a relationship but are having some arguments about money. The second section follows them on a disastrous cruise where they're rubbing shoulders with the super rich on a luxury yacht, captained by Woody Harrelson. And then in the third section, we have a sort of upending of the status quo. So like I said, this won the top award at Cannes, but the film did rub up some the wrong way. Maybe Lewis, maybe we can start with you. What do you make of it? So I'm not usually like a big fan of satire, but this did really do it for me. I, I think my problem with satire is that it's just too easy to make a bunch of characters and make them the worst possible people and just play it off for laughs. And then it gets like a little bit fantastical and, and divorced from reality. Like, it, you know, I guess it's a parody, but you can always take it too far. But this had such a great structure. Um, even like, you know, our first part of the story, our first act where we really just have Carl and Yaya, these two models, and they're just arguing about money. But the the scenes are like built so wonderfully. So they're having an argument in an elevator where Carl has to keep thrusting his hand in to stop the doors from closing. Or when they go to this like very, you know, totally not self-aware fashion catwalk where because famous people come in, people have to be moved along and the camera has to move with them up and down the seats. Like it's just showing how this film works. And then my favorite part was when we get into the second act where we introduce this huge cast of characters that are like so deliciously hateable. Like, <laughs> it, it, you know, satire doesn't necessarily need to be like knee slapping funny, but it definitely helps. And that's what this film has. There's like a sweet elderly couple who've made their money from precision engineering and they're really proud of the fact that their products have upheld democracy around the world for generations. So when Carl presses on that product is, they just have to say, hand grenades. <laughs> like, they're, they're, it's this underlying insecurity where everyone's so disingenuous and they're so fun to laugh at, especially when in the second act finale, I don't know how spoilerly we're getting, but they pretty much all go to hell. Yeah, I don't know if we should spoil what happens, but I think we can. Uh, should we say should that? Should we? Should we? Should we? <laughs> no. Okay, well, that was... Okay, we won't then. <laughs> but... Okay, we won't. I uh, think we shouldn't. Yeah. That would be... Because it's part of the fun of this film. It's like just how each act is kind of... It feels like a different story. It feels like a different short film mm -hmm. in a way. Um, but yeah, things happen. Yeah, it, it does build. <laughs> I, like I, I, I thought it was interesting. I, I think my favorite part and the most satisfying part is the third part, personally. The third one. Yeah. Oh, I disagree. Well, that's okay. We can't go into it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I agree. I can't remember the last time I laughed so hard at a movie, and I think people have complained that it's like the satire is like unsophisticated or this is low hanging fruit. But you know, low hanging fruit is there to be picked off, and I don't think people are. <laughs> making these films like i can't believe watching this why 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 is not why is there not 10 of these a year you know i think we should be angry at the rich elite and I, uh, and i think there should be sort of films like completely tearing them apart um so yeah i i had an absolute kick while watching this yeah it is a fun time i 
got like a I went to a public screening of this at London Film Festival um and it was in like Royal Festival Hall and it was packed out and there was hooting and there was hollering in the aisles like it was wild this stupid film I love it so much it has not a shred of subtlety like not a shred and I think you're right there should be more of these but I think if we like it's probably quite a clumsy comparison but in comparison to say Parasite you know that was doing something and this is just like balls to the walls absolutely fucking insane doesn't give a shit but it like takes such evident pleasure in being absolutely fucking chaotic <laughs> that I just, I was completely won over. I really liked it. Um, I'm a really, really big fan of Harris Dickinson. I am so pleased he's having this like rising star moment and he is very good. Shelby Dean, who plays his girlfriend is amazing. Probably should say like oh, the yeah. really like horrible, sad thing. She died earlier this summer. She got like, um, I think they said it was like an infection or something, like a lung infection. She was my age, just, yeah, really, really sad. And yeah, she she was amazing in this, like amazing. And it's sad kind of what could have kind of happened afterwards. But my favorite bit was the first part. I think we're having like another one of our French dispatch. Just not a great but yeah, I love the first bit because it's just this like perfect little chamber piece of this annoying couple arguing with each other about money. And they're both trying to be like pass off as progressive and they're both just being assholes. <laughs> and it's just so well done. And I think the thing I respect most about this film is it will not shut the fuck up. Like it will not let something go. These characters just keep, there's this one bit like so funny where Harris Dickinson will keep like, She's in the lift and lift doors keep closing and he keeps opening them to be like, add another thing, <laughs> which is just so silly. Um, so yeah, for me, it fell apart a little bit in the third part, um, just cause it, that felt more familiar than anything else I had seen. Um, but it was still very, very good. And we see a lot more of, is it like Filipino actress, Dolly De Leon? Yeah, Abigail. Dolly De Leon, um, who, yeah, is like, so funny and kind of starts to steal the show and so all the parts are great just the first part was my favorite um so yeah absolute fucking chaos apparently um dolly de leon uh auditioned without any representation she's like an really? unsigned talent and now is signed because she's absolutely fantastic in yeah. this and but i also think that kind of like you know the role that she's playing is is one of like this humble you know, working class individual who's like looked down upon by all the other characters and is thus unexpectedly thrust into sudden power. Um, so, you know, in that regard, I think that like that's kind of the the casting attitude that you want. Mm. But she's absolutely wonderful. Like definitely a good takeaway. I'm also really pleased with, again, I know we're not really discussing that much what happened, but <laughs> I, I, I've never seen like a film that has such a even people with like such minor roles are really in it when the when when the shit hits the fan <laughs> they are absolutely like throwing themselves into the sets they are just mm. like absolutely getting chaotic with it it's such a delight to watch there's so much energy behind it both in front of and behind the camera yeah it's a very physical film like in so many ways it kind of reminded a little bit like watching a really good stand-up comedy routine if that makes sense <laughs> because like i feel like sometimes stand-up comedy gets really good once uh, well, the, f the first section is almost like a stand-up comedy routine, like but but really smartly ob observed, and the se middle section just builds and builds, and the joke keeps getting re repeated. The same thing happens, 
and I realised I could watch this for hours mm. and not lose, like I thought really this shouldn't be boring by now, I've seen the same thing happen again and again, but yeah I could, I could watch that sequence forever on a loop, it's like I, I was thinking that while watching, I was like, surely there'll come a point where the writer has to say that's enough but I'm still <laughs> laughing <laughs> so clearly it's not enough, enough I guess so Sorry for being so cryptic. You should go and watch this. Josh is listening in the next room and he said he wants to see it, so we can't spoil okay. it for him. Josh, go and see it. And everybody else can see it. It's great. Okay. When does it come out? Oh, yeah, I should say that. Uh, <laughs> this is why we need Pierre. Pierre's good at all this stuff. Um, so I've, I've actually not been following the notes, though. Okay, so um, yeah, The Triangle Sadness is released by Curzon on the 28th of October. I think you'll probably see this quite wide, so you'll, pre see, you'll be able to see this in most places. Um, but if not, you can also probably find it on Curzon On Demand. Okay, the next up is another film from Cannes. It's uh, Decisions to Leave. It's a silky piece of neo noir from Korean director Park Chan-wook. And it follows a hotshot young detective named Hae-joon who's assigned to investigate the death of an experienced climber, who's a businessman, who's fallen to his death um, on a rock face. Now, the man's widow, So Ray, uh, is called in for questioning. She has an alibi, but she seems very unaffected by her husband's death. And the mysteriousness part of her is also intensified by the fact that she's Chinese and she doesn't speak good Korean. So we're not sure if it's just a language barrier or if there's something else going on. So Heijun quickly becomes obsessed with her, um, his prime suspect, um, and that kind of turns into more than just a professional interest. Anna here, we'll start with you. you uh, actually, Lewis hasn't seen this, so we'll have to start with you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, um, what do you make of this one? Uh, this is a very sexy film. I love this film. This was one of my favourites I saw in London. Um, I haven't actually seen that much Park Chan-wook, although I now desperately want to change that. Um, but all I had seen before this was The Handmaiden, and which I think is probably his most famous film, or kind of most seen film. But this feels like such a different animal in a way that I think appealed to me a lot more, in that it's deeply, deeply restrained, and it like finds romance through holding back rather than through release. And so it's kind of like sexiness through yearning, which is my favorite kind of sexiness. My favorite part of this is how, like the way that he manipulates the camera and how he blocks scenes and sets up scenes is so, so clever. And it's kind of thinking about how like desire and imagination and kind of the entanglement between both of them are like materialized and literalized. So there'll be all of these scenes of him like doing a stakeout outside of her apartment and she'll pick up a cigarette and he'll like reach out and light it. And then he's in the apartment with her. And then he like draws back and he's back in the car. And the way that like the boundaries between them like collapse in his head, but also on screen. And yeah, it feels just like so different to the idea of like the hard boiled traditional noir, which I think can often be quite stark in some ways. And this just felt so like porous and fluid. Um, it reminded me a lot of Otto Preminger's Laura, um, which is one of my favorite films ever. If you haven't seen it, um, it's like a 1940s film about like a very hard boiled detective played by, is it Dana Andrews? He's so hot, oh my God. And he falls in love with the portrait of the murder victim, Laura. And so it's kind of got quite like similar themes. Um, and I think both of them kind of think about that idea of 
the latent kind of romance and obsession behind that kind of you know not real like quite fictional I don't think that's actually how the police function but that fictional idea of police work which is very voyeuristic which is kind of like a probing into someone's interiority and how that can kind of be such a fertile ground for like horniness yeah it's a great fucking time I really liked it what did you think Jamie yeah no I agree I love this it's, it's weird it's like a film where I kind of seen this story a million times. It's like that kind of sleeping with the enemy. Mm. Uh, did she do it? Did she do it? You know, you see, you know, like whether it's um, body heat or basic instinct or Black Widow or uh, out of the past, any number of like noirs have done this kind of idea. The Last Seduction does it as well. So, I, so the plot kind of almost like didn't matter. Like, and also like Patrick and Wicked, he's like so good at twists. You know, like, he loves to like take you in this kind of really convoluted labyrinth plot um and i kind of like just gave up because like i kind of lost i got a little bit lost actually um maybe maybe part, partly just i wasn't keeping up but there's a few things that kind of went over my head but that didn't matter because i was just getting such enjoyment from just watching a filmmaker who's an absolute virtuoso you know like his, his craft is amazing those scenes you're talking about um where he would sort of you know the voyeuristic scenes where he's stalking this woman basically he's doing a stakeout uh, and then but suddenly he would be in the same room as her. I've never seen him to do anything like mm-hmm. that before, but it just worked perfectly. It's like, it was brand new film grammar, but it was just so fluid and so confidently done that at no point was I lost in terms of the, the I was lost with the plot, but I was never lost <laughs> with with the camera. You know, he, he's just so good at like, um, at, at following action and the action scenes are fantastic. There's a few kind of foot chases, which are amazing. Um, I love how the detective, he has like all these little pockets. Yeah. Uh, he's got a specially designed suit. Uh, he's a very fastidious man, very well put together, um, uh, which is in contrast to his colleagues who are like kind of schlubby and useless. But anyway, he's, he's, he's really, really well put together. he got this amazing suit with all these little pockets with like all these little things in it. But yeah, it's, but that is all played out beautifully. And it's really funny. Um, it, I agree, so sexy. The chemistry between the two actors is in, insane. Um, <laughs> And it has a kind of change as well. I wouldn't again. It's a, I wouldn't spoil anything, but like it, it kind of changes location, sort of in the final third, and it has a nice kind of change in atmosphere. Um, yeah, I think this is fantastic. Patch and Wick, very good. Very good. I'm trying to remember um, the name of the actress that plays So Ray. What is her name? Hang on. I'm going I did not write that. Um, but because she is a Chinese actress, and she was in Ang Lee's Lust Caution. And I can't remember who was telling me, I think maybe Shanlen, friend of the pod, maybe it was them that was telling me, but apparently for the Korean, she would like learn it um, almost like phonetically. So she would just like memorize these like lines before the scene um, and to kind of do that and to like have put in such a good fucking performance while doing that. Um, kind of reminded me, not in any other way, but how Jackie Chan in um, Russia <laughs> would learn English like phonetically, <laughs> and it's so charming. Tangway is her name. Um, yeah, it was very, just very impressive all around. Yeah, so I don't know what more we could say about that film uh, other than just definitely go out and watch it. You know, um, I should say they're doing a big retrospective of uh, Park Chan Wook on Mubi right now. So if you're not seeing things like Oh Boy or um, Lady Vengeance or uh, Stoker, which is one of my favourites of his. Um, they're, they're, I think they're all showing on Mubi, so um, worth catching. Um, the Handmaid Gnome sure will be part of that um, season as well. And yeah, that's uh, coming out on the 21st and it's out by Mubi. 
So the final film we're going to talk about today is The Banshee of Inishirin, which played at Venice. Um, so The Banshee of Inishirin sees Martin McDonough re- reunite with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, the two stars of his debut film in Bruges. They play Porrick and Colm, who are lifelong friends who are living in this kind of remote island on the west coast of Ireland, where there's not much to do but drink pints down the pub and gossip. But the pair find themselves at an impasse when Colm, Gleeson's character, unexpectedly puts an end to their friendship. Uh, Farrell's character, Podrick, attempts to repair the friendship, uh, refuses to take no for an answer, but that only makes things worse uh, and sort of things descend from there. So maybe start with Annie. Did you see this at Venice, Annie? No, I had a ticket, like um, a screening, and then I cancelled it because I didn't want to wake up early. So I saw this in London. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I like this. I think a lot of people out of Venice were like, this is the best film of the Venice Film Festival. And so I think it was a bit overhyped for me. Um, I also haven't ever seen any other Martin McDonough, is that how you mm-hmm. say it? Which I know is really bad. But then I heard Three Billboards was shit and I've just never got around seeing in Bruges. So, you know, like I'm just not, I'm just not. So all I'll say, I'm maybe not the best person. <laughs> to speak to this um but i thought it was fine i thought colin farrell's eyebrows were like doing a whole thing that was fucking great um performances were very very funny they're both very very good i think as it went on and the darker it got and again i don't want to spoil anything but there's this kind of conceit that's like very fucked up <laughs> that like just kind of lost me and i wasn't really sure what i was watching and i wonder if like maybe if i saw it again knowing exactly what the tone was and what maybe I would like it more but I think I just felt a bit like at odds with it I think also for me there was a bit of a like inherent structural tension to it in that this feels like a two-hander and it kind of is right it's held together by these two very good performances and then also again I can't remember anyone's name um but there's this whole thing about like Colin Farrell's sister who's kind of like the other um like main character and she's very very good and I actually liked her storylines the most and she is played by Carrie Condon there we go but really it is about these two men but it felt quite unbalanced in that we mostly see it through Colin Farrell's kind of character most of the time and while I loved him and I thought they did a very good job of that kind of the muddle of like his interiority and the way that it's like very very funny and also deeply sad and I thought that worked it also meant that a lot of the events just felt a bit inexplicable because I was like, Brennan Gleeson, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what is going on? Like, what is going on? Um, and maybe that's the point. But I think it just, yeah, I think I was like very, very on board to begin with. And then I was like, okay, like that was fine. Uh, I'm just I'm just in shock that you haven't mentioned a certain actor who's in this film yet. Yeah, like- <gasps> oh my God, yes. Yeah, okay, no, that was really good. <laughs> Actually, maybe that's where it kind of lost me, the less that he was in it. Uh, Friend of the pod, <laughs> Barry Keoghan is it, and he's actually really, really good. Yeah, how did I forget? Oh my god, he's so memorable. He has this, no, he like, is the best part of the film. He, actually, he ever, I've never seen him in a role where he is not like just squirming his way yeah. through everything, and he's so active and just doesn't sit still. Yeah, he's great in the Green Knight. Yeah, he's Very, feral. Yeah. Is yes, the thing. He's, a very, he's, he's feral. so fucking feral. Oh my god, it's so um, sexy. He's really good. He plays like the kind of dim like wit of the like it's all like a bit mean um but of the village or of the island 
but he kind of forms a bond with Colin Farrell's character when he's like essentially dumped by Brendan Gleeson and there is just something very like mournful and innocent about him in a way that there isn't with it and so actually yeah that bit was really clever but yeah I think that's the thing there were parts of I really liked and I thought actually the Colin Farrell bit was really strong in his relationship with his sister and with uh, Barry Keoghan all of these characters have names I just can't remember what they are but it was kind of the supposed central story that I was like yeah but what like why are you behaving like this I think you there is something interesting there because like it is a film that is fueled entirely by these performances, this dynamic, particularly this relationship, this uh it's like a blood feud love affair breakup saga between these two characters. And not in a bad way, but the trailer sort of really missells the tone of the film for me. Like it has all the funniest exchanges in it. It makes it seem like there's much more of an underlying wit present throughout the entire film when there's really not. It's like it increasingly gets serious and sad and dark. There's only like one or two scenes I would say that like actually like got a really big laugh out of me. Uh, but like, you know, I would say that like structurally, you know, not to, I don't think this really counts as a spoiler. It's in the trailer, but like Brendan Gleeson says, every time you come and talk to me, I'll take my shears, I'll chop off one of my fingers and I'll throw it at oh, you. Is that in the trailer? Yeah, that's, that's the, the bit I was thinking about. It's fucked up. Yeah. What is that? But like, that, that's the thing is like this sort of oath winds up making a really good narrative device, which I feel like we could have had more plot events like that rather than, because without that, it's just their conversations, which whilst performed really well and done with a really good script, can sort of wash into one another and plot events like that would help bring out the sort of plots a lot mm -hmm. better you've got like lots of interesting characters Barry Kurgan's one of them Kerry Condon you've got this psychopathic policeman it all feels like you know like this very morbid crone who keeps talking about death like it feels like this is all the fuel of a powder keg that's about to go off that it's all gonna come together that they're all and they all do kind of get like maybe a scene and a half to kind of and again give really good performances but they don't actually have much to do like, I feel like the film actually lacks, you know, strong elements, strong chunks of stuff to do. Uh, and I guess, again, that's kind of the point it being in Ashiran is this island out in the middle of nowhere. And the isolation is kind of what's brought out some of the madness of this feud. Yeah. And also, yeah, there's this really kind of interesting that I wish they'd done more about is that this is set in the 20s and every now and then they can see across the mainland that's where the Irish Civil War is happening and I think that's a really interesting backdrop and it makes the film like quite an interesting allegory for that but I guess I would have liked to see I think the kind of that take on the idea of like a civil war or a conflict or whatever that's a bit like why can't these people get along and the inherent absurdity of that there's something in that but I think it also feels a little bit reductive and maybe that's maybe if I knew a lot more about it actually I'd notice the subtleties of what he was doing um, but it felt like a very interesting idea that maybe wasn't carried through entirely but is definitely an interesting backdrop to the film. I get that. I mean, I, I, I really like this. I think this is my favourite Martin McDonough film that I've seen. He, he's a playwright, you know, and, mm. and, and obviously I think the, the film really, it's the dialogue that, that I thought sparkled the most. But interestingly, if I hadn't known it was a Martin McDonough film, I think I would have went in expecting something different because it's the first kind of 10 minutes. It's almost like a, a kind of whimsical period film, like, like full of blarney and sort of crack and 
like I thought, what is this? Um, this is, doesn't feel like his normal movies. Um, but then it becomes a bit more like Becca, I think. It's like it becomes a bit more kind of mm. mythical almost. Um, and I think, yeah, I think he's clearly playing with that um, allegorical idea. You know, the fact is their argument is ridiculous. The, the, the re- they shouldn't be warring. They have no reason to war. They, they go to extreme measures for no reason. And that, I think he's just sort of paralleling what's happened in Ireland through the 20th century, basically, and, and still, you know, um, in, um, in a way. So, like, uh, that, that's what I, I took from him. I, I guess you could maybe, he could have maybe done more um, to explore that. But yeah, it's just that's a really good film about fucking loneliness and being, yeah. like, being isolated. And, you know, I grew up in a, a, a small town community, not on an island, but like a, a town where there's literally nothing to do apart from go to the pub and gossip down the post office. And that <laughs> is what people do. And then people, when they fall out, people fall out for years. It's like honestly insane. People have grudges from like childhood. Like, they, it's, it like goes through. Yeah, small town is bizarre, and this I think film gets the kind of weirdness of it. Um, so I thought it was really fun allegory. Um, kind of really smartly written, uh, like scene by scene. I thought it was great. Yeah, maybe I agree that maybe it doesn't as a whole hold together, but. For the you know, in terms of the performance, in terms of each scene, I thought they were great. I thought um, the actor who played um, Podrick's uh, sister, Carrie uh, Condon, yeah, she, uh, she played Siobhan Carrie Condon. She was so good, mm-hmm. um, like the only sane person in the whole island. And of course, she's the person who has to get off it because, like, she's like, I cannot stay with these idiots anymore. Yeah, um, there's this really good bit where Brendan Gleeson, she's talking to him, and she's like, "Why after all of these years?" And he, she's like. He says to her, like, oh, like, he's really boring. And she's like, you're all fucking boring. <laughs> no, she's so good. She's so many good lines. But, like, but I love how, like, also you've got this idyllic place. Usually, like I say, films will set, period films will, will make this all kind of, like, lovely and sing-songy. You know, people are, you know, the, like, the, the cliched image of Ireland, you know, the quiet man or whatever. But, but there's a kind of always a... A sense that violence is going to come in, you know, like we, we hear that behind closed doors, people are awful, you know, like uh, everybody seems charming and friendly, but actually they're all got not, not, not a good word to say about each other, you know, so it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a kind of really kind of good observation of small town life. Um, even if, if you're not from Ireland, I think you would sort of get something from this. There's a really good line in it at one point where, um, you know, Podrick's being told he's not one of the thinkers and he's like, what am I? It's like, you're one of life's good ones in a very sort of like patronising tone. And he, he says, I used to think that was enough. And so like, that's very early on in the film. One thing I'll say is that the pacing's great because you've seen the trailer. It's about this feud. We pretty much start on it. We just hit the ground running. And you're immediately like kind of being thrown these questions about like goodness and what's better to be remembered or to do well with the time that you have. And it's not that they don't go anywhere. It's just that I think, I don't know, we don't really, I I didn't really buy into the way these questions transform the characters. You know, again, I think that we're racing to get to a point where it seems as pointless and ancient a battle as the Troubles, but really like it can feel a bit rushed there. It does feel a little bit like I, you know, like we can rationalize it a little bit better. And I think that's the problem that you were talking about, which is that like we're biased a little bit towards Colin Farrell's character, Mm -hmm. like a more balanced exploration of this feud 
could, you know, somehow make it like almost really heartbreaking and that you don't know which way to go with. But as it is, it's kind of just a really sympathetic, sad tale yeah. about how, you know, pride is a sin that can be passed from one person to another. Mm. And I think that comparison to the troubles is also really interesting because I guess, yeah, that is my problem with the allegory, I suppose, is... I mean, yeah, I don't know that much about the Irish Civil War, but, like, the way that the Troubles were framed, to me, growing up um, in England as a kid, like, during the 90s, was very, like, gee, why can't these people get along? And there was no kind of, you know, hint towards the responsibility of the English. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, all of this stuff. And I think, yeah, I, I think Civil Wars, like, happen for a reason, and they're not just... There is, like, an existential absurdity to them, but also they are often happening for a reason and that is that certain mechanisms of power have happened. And so I think just flattening it into a like, it's ridiculous, to me isn't really doing enough with allegory, I suppose. Um, but also, I mean, yeah, like I said, I don't know that much about it, so. Well, I thought it was good. <laughs> I would so, recommend yeah. it. I had a I, good I time. Really liked it. it's, yeah, it's, I just don't think it's like the five-star masterpiece that people are saying. No, maybe that's uh, maybe going a bit too far. But anyway, that's going to be out from Disney, bizarrely. Um, that's out on the 28th. So I'd say... Maybe on Disney Plus? Uh, not on Disney Plus, it's just out by Disney. Oh, I see. I, okay. Eventually it'll go to Disney Plus, yeah, I okay. imagine. But, um, so that's, I would say that's three pretty solid art house movies. Yeah. I get frustrated that they all come out at once, so hopefully people will get a chance to see them all. So that was our show for today. So big thank you to Upload Studio, who, um, as ever, have provided with this great equipment. That's why we sound so fantastic. Um, so you can find them at uploadstudio.co.uk. Um, if you like our podcast, you should subscribe, tell your friends, leave a preview. Um, but only if you like us. Don't give us bad reviews, please. Um, <laughs> That's well, what we do. Exactly. <laughs> We have more Cine Skinny screenings come up. If you want to meet us in real life, come along to Glasgow, um, the Glasgow leg of our Brian M. Ferguson retrospective. That's taking place at the CCA in Glasgow on the 25th of October. Um, and we're very chuffed that Brian is going to be joining us for a Q&A, so don't miss that. Please say hello if you come along. Uh, you can get tickets over at the CCA website or at theskinny.co.uk slash tickets. Uh, and then, yeah, follow us all on Twitter. You can get Anna Hit at uh, Anhit Ruse um, I'm on Jamie Dunn Esquire and Lewis you can find him on Lou underscore Rob underscore or just email the pod and give us some good chat basically uh, we're on <laughs> cineskinny at skinny.co.uk um, have I forgot anything does Peter usually do something else at this point no I think that's all he does yep that's it so that's us bye yes. bye, bye. bye. <laughs>